And I remember a young man coming to me one day, and uh, I was in Memphis, and he said, I know you, I know I don't, shouldn't do this. I know uh, that we don't believe that you have to do this, but could I come and just confess my sins to you and let you then, rep, you know, take them before the Father? And I said, no, but what I'll love to do with you is sit with you and walk you through your confession before God and let you feel the very presence of your high priest who says to you, I got that one. I paid for that one. You're free from all the guilt and shame associated with your sins. That's the message of our priest. It says that he is now in front of God doing that. And he represents God to us and us to God in this incredibly beautiful way. And that's what Paul has been doing as he wrote this book or this letter to the churches in Galatia. If you remember, we've been looking at this uh, letter and it was what was called a circular letter. It was a letter that would have been given to one church and it would have been read there and a copy of that letter would have been made and the scroll copy of that letter would have been sent to another church around. Remember, they didn't have the technology that we did today. They couldn't just Skype and have Paul sort of be. They didn't have multi-campus churches there where you could have Paul all over the place. But they had this letter and it was circulated around. And that Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, was a spiritual Disney world. You could have picked any religion you wanted to pick, any temple you wanted to be in, any god that you wanted. If you didn't have a god, you could create your own and do whatever it was, but you were going to be working really, really hard in order to clear your conscience or to do enough to believe that you got to go to heaven, whatever that heaven was in your representation of it. And here came Paul teaching this gospel this good news that said, you don't have to work hard to get to heaven. Let me tell you something. The God of heaven came down on your behalf and worked for you so that all you have to do is believe in him by faith and by grace then and his mercy, you are saved and your security is so tight that you can never lose it. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Absolutely nothing can. And the Greek world was turned on its ear. They'd never heard such a thing. You mean it's not through all of this? You mean I don't have to keep working and beating my body into submission and doing foul and grotesque acts? I don't have to sacrifice even my child in a bloody sacrifice in order to appease my conscience and to do what needs to be done? No. God did all of it on your behalf through Christ Jesus, his son. And now Christ is risen. And what would be the natural question of a person who said, Well, Jesus came, he dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and we know that he lived among us, the perfect life, and then he went to the cross and died uh, this death, and then he went into the grave, but he rose again from the dead on the third day, and now he's ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, above all rule and authority, to come back one day. Now, a, a child at that point would go, when's he coming back? He said he was going to come back one day, but no one knows that day. And the child would probably ask, well, what do we do in the meantime? Did he leave anybody else around? Kind of like Jesus came and left. And God would go, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm sure most of you have been asking that same question. And the answer to that question is he left the third person of the Trinity. Here, the Spirit dwelling in and among us 
so that we can constantly be with God always. So you're not left alone. He says, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm not gonna leave you in that way, but I'm gonna minister to you and I'm going to strengthen you in the inner man and I'm gonna just do these amazing things in you and I'm gonna be changing you so that this change begins now and will you ever fully be changed in this life? No. We'll struggle with sin, but one day, When Christ returns, the struggle will be over and you'll be made new. But in the meantime, the Spirit is going to be working in and through you. That's where we are now in chapter 5. We've said that this Spirit that indwells us. Real simply, folks, do you realize that? The third person of the Trinity, God himself, has taken up residence where? In you. Think about how people... Go through the Scriptures... I love it. And when someone encounters God, that the spirit in some representation by fire or by the pillar of smoke by day and the fire by night or the Shekinah glory of God that would come down on a person or the high priest. You know, that high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, you know what he had to wear, right? You've heard the stories. He had a rope around him and he would go in there. Why would he have a rope around him? Because if he encountered the very presence of God, usually what happens, the next statement is, and he got up. You realize that when you come face to face or in some presence of God himself, the first response of the person, I I love it when people go, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to ask God all these questions. I have a feeling when we get to heaven, we're going to see God in all of his glory. We're going to (laughs) go, And we're going to go, oh, that's what John meant when he said that he was as if a dead man flopping around in front of the Lord going, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of God. Don't kill me. He go, now get up. That very presence dwells in you. The presence of God that hovered over the deep and called into everything, into being from nothing, dwells in you. It's there. Do you realize what you have and who you are? God's saying, You need to know those things. And in knowing those things, then you need to know several things that begin to happen in your life. God doesn't want you to stay the same. He is in the business of transforming your lives. He is not as concerned about your behavior. This isn't about behavioral modification. We can modify behavior. We can set up. uh, If you were driving late last night on I-77 or 26 or 95, anywhere around 11 p.m. last night, you would notice big, bright, blinking signs all over. And it said, statewide crackdown on DUI. I hadn't had anything to drink, and I got nervous. I slowed way down. I wasn't going that fast. And it's like, I'm just, at least like everything okay? It's like, fine. They, the state can mandate, but they modified my behavior, didn't they? By putting some signs up. Parents, can you modify the behavior of your children? That would be yes. The answer, children, your parents can modify your behavior. I had a friend whose daughter was acting up on some things, and she was all into this idea of privacy. And so she got home from school one day, and her door was missing. He modified her behavior by getting rid of the door in his house that she was just a consumer in for a few years. 
We can modify behavior, but that's not what God wants. He doesn't want our behavior just to be modified. I've said it to you before. Why do so many of our children who grow up in the church, grow up in a Christian environment, they can tell you all the books of the Bible, they can tell you all the great stories, they can just take and answer all the catechism questions, they go off to college, and they go, wow, they go nuts. They're drinking, they're drugging, they're, they're not going to church, they're sleeping around, they're doing everything, they're questioning their faith, they're doing all of this stuff. Well, why? Because there hasn't, there's been moral and behavioral modification. But then they get outside the nice confines of the church and of your family and of our Christian community and of this island, and all of a sudden we realize there's been no spiritual transformation taking place. It's just skin deep, it's just head knowledge. Christ comes in and takes up residence and he begins to transform us from the inside out. He begins to transform us at a motive level. He changes our motivations. He changes who we are. He changes our heart, which is that seat of our emotions and our thoughts and our minds. He he begins to move in our soul in that way that all of a sudden at a deep motivational level, we're changed. Because what you begin to see in the life of a Christian and what you should see is we've joked around and said, what do you have on Sunday? A guy comes into church, he's the biggest jerk you've got in the community. He gets saved on a Sunday. What do you have on a Monday? You got a Christian jerk. He loves Jesus, but he hasn't been fully changed. But his motivations are because then you begin to talk to him and he goes, I want to love Jesus. I don't want to keep doing these things. I remember in my own story, in my own life, I had a radical transformation with Christ, driving down I-77 of all places, and and I got home, and the next thing I know, I'm hanging out with all my buddies doing all the same things because I didn't know any better. And I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, I looked at him and went, I want to honor God, and I don't think what we're doing tonight is honoring the Lord, so I'm not going to participate in this anymore. And they're like, huh, cool, more for us. And they just sort of went on. And I was in a relationship with a person, and I said, I don't think this relationship is honoring to the Lord and I want to honor the Lord in my life and so I don't know that we can continue in this relationship. And she said, fine, bye. I said, okay. And I looked at my finances and said, I want to honor the Lord in my finances. All of a sudden, what was happening inside of me was at a deep motivational level and as the motivational level began to change and the heart began to change, guess what began to follow? Behavior began to follow that. That our behaviors are tied to our hearts and your belief structures. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying now, you now as a Christian have two desiring centers in you. One of the flesh, one of the spirit. And they're going to be in conflict with one another. Let's hear how he phrases it. He says, this is coming from chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. You'll notice I've been saying that we're going to... uh, put in a little bit of Isaiah 40, you're going to have a response uh, at the end of this. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, 
that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step in the Spirit with the, with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. And so here you have these things. That there's this battle going on in our hearts at a deep and profound level. It's not just behavior. And so we've said before and we said last week that the end of all of this is it's a battle for your freedom. Will you remain free in Christ or will you move back under a system of law which says that your merit before God is settled on how good you are. How hard you work. And so we have this battle. Remember Paul said, for freedom Christ has set you free. Do not Stand firm, therefore, and do not return again to a yoke of slavery. So this battle is every Christian's battle. I quoted Robert Murray McShane last week, and he said this. He was a Scottish pastor. He said, the Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. A Christian is known by their warfare as much as they are by their peace. You see, the, the, the point there is this. This is every Christian's battle. It, it's going to be a battle. Been married 20 years, and some of you married long, uh, longer than that. One thing about marriage is it takes work, doesn't it? You just don't walk down the aisle, stand up in front, and go, I do, you, you do, good, we do, good, we're, we're set. Lisa and I joked around with our pastor. We weren't joking, quite honestly. He said, what expectations do you have for one another? And we looked at each other, and we looked at him, and we said, we have no expectations. We're just going to be happy, <laughs> really. And then, well, honey, you know, we didn't get the dishes done. That sort of plural singular use of we, uh, which means usually you in there. Oh, and expectation. Uh, you expected me to do that. I expected you to do that. All of you in your marriages, you realize these expectations and you realize something about marriage. To have a healthy, good marriage takes work, it's a battle to have a healthy marriage. And for some people, they go, you know what? I don't feel like working that hard. I thought it was gonna be easier. I'm out. Some of you have been hurt by that. You've had those who've committed to you say, I'm not willing to put any more energy into this. I'm gone. And they're gonna move on to somebody else. And the person that they move to, they think won't be as difficult and they'll have an easier time. And the sad reality is this. They will. Because every relationship takes work. If it's on a human level, that's true. Guess what? On a spiritual level, that's also true. 
to have a healthy relationship with the Lord, to walk in a way that says be led by the Spirit, follow the Spirit, walk in line. Remember uh, when Paul confronted Peter a couple of chapters ago when Peter said had gotten out of step with with the gospel? He had sort of moved over into racism uh, and into a comfort with the Jews and had sort of separated himself from the Gentiles and he moved across and Paul said, Peter, you gotta fight that. I understand where that's coming from, but you have to fight against that natural tendency to separate yourself based on a racial or social line. Fight that, because in order to stay in line with the gospel, Peter, you got to work at it. And Peter's greatest motivation was to be in line, and so he worked at it, and he fought that battle. That's the battle that we have. So folks, I don't want to sell you something that isn't true. Too many times people sell the gospel this way. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine. Come to Jesus and usually somewhere within six weeks, most of your finances will be put in order. Addiction should be gone within eight to ten. If you're really a hard case, maybe six months. Relational problems, those take a while, but we'll get those straightened out for you. But it should be fine. They present the gospel in this way that everything's just going to be hunky-dory. When the reality of the gospel is this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the great German theologian who was martyred for his faith under Nazi Germany, he wrote this. He said, the invitation of Christ is simply put, come and die. Well, there's a billboard invitation. (laughs) Hilton Head Presbyterian invites you to come and die every Sunday morning with us. Boy, this place would be filled, wouldn't it? Go around your cul-de-sac in whatever neighborhood you're in. We'd like to have a Bible study, and we want you to come because we're going to learn about how to die. Wow. But that's it. It's a battle of dying to self and those selfish motivations and learning to live to Christ and his motivations. And folks, the honest assessment of the gospel is this. It's a battle. It's a battle, isn't it? And those of you who've walked with Christ for 10 minutes or for 10 years, or for 50 years, know that battle well. And so there's this battle that takes place, and the battle rages within us. It's not so much an external battle. We're not fighting, though, Chris, thank you for the hymn. Did anybody pick up on the little hymn that was played as the kids came up? Yeah, it was Onward Christian Soldiers. Um, You know, the one that's never sung in church anymore. Um, But it's that battle. You know the church historically has been called the church militant? But that doesn't sell well today. Oh, the militant church. But it is, it's militant against the powers of this world, the principalities and powers, those things in our hearts which battle us. Paul's saying there's a battle. So here's the first thing I want to say to you about this battle in every Christian's life. We're going to move quickly because I touched on this last week. Folks, the battle's a good thing. For way too many people that I come in contact with, they simply, they they live a life that is so, it cannot be distinguished as Christian in one iota of their lifestyle, in one, one bit of who they are. They say, I love Jesus though. Yeah, how's that working deep down? Is there a battle? Oh no, my conscience is clear. Really? So all this list of stuff that Paul had there, that was a pretty nasty list, wasn't it? dissensions and factions and orgies and sensualities and backbiting and fits of rage and anger and all of this stuff. Uh, you know, are you bothered at all by any of those things in your life? Mm, no, not, not really. Sleep well at night. My, my head goes out on the pillow and I'm, I'm good to go. The absence of any battle should scare you 
to death. Because if the things which the scriptures say are wrong, and if the things which Christ says are against him don't bother you at some level, what you have to begin to ask there is this simple question, is the spirit residing in me? Is it residing in me at all? I've been asked to do way too many funerals in my life where the person lived a lifestyle uh, in a community and the only way you could, could characterize that lifestyle was pagan. It had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And then the family would come around and they would say, yeah, but, but granddaddy walked the aisle when he was seven up in Minnesota and, and he loved Jesus. You talk about an awkward moment. And one of such great delicacy to have to handle. To look at a life of 70 years that fought not one moment for anything that would even faintly resemble Christ. And yet say, but I love Jesus. This should be a battle. And that battle raging in you is that flesh, that old self, that old you, the sinful part of you that's going to be with you until Christ returns or you go to heaven, whichever comes first. And that spirit which is in you and the greatest motivations in you are those things of the spirit. Paul says the flesh battles and tries to keep us from doing the things we want to do. What he means by that is that flesh comes in and says, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Or, oh, you want to do that, but you want to make it an over-desire. Remember we mentioned that last week, that big word that Paul used, epithumia. A desire becomes an over-desire or a super-desire. That it's that flesh trying to take something good and pulling it into its system of thought so that all of a sudden it becomes your identity. It becomes your idol. It's a good desire that's become an ultimate desire. Does that make sense to you guys? I, I mean, I, I know that's sort of on conceptual level, uh, but it, it's saying, I like people's opinion, or it's saying, I want to have money. It's, is it wrong to have wealth? The answer is no, it's not wrong to have wealth. But if that desire to provide for your family becomes an over-desire, pulled in and manipulated by the flesh that you have to have wealth, you have to have money, or in order to think that you're something, then it's become sinful. And the spirit has to battle against that and say, whoa, 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 bring that back into line. Is it good to want people to like you? Well, of course it is to want to have a good reputation. But to have to have people like you. Ah, that over-desire has taken, taken part. And so there's this battle of the two natures, the battle of the flesh you're, and the spirit. You're not schizophrenic. It's not that you're going, well, I want, but I can't. But, but it's always battling. You face it every day. In every way, we face those things. And that battle is going on. So I want to encourage you on this. Christian... The battle's a good thing. And some of you who may not be Christians, and, and you're sort of investigating this whole thing, but you're beginning to start to see this wrestling in your, in your heart, that's a good thing. That means the Spirit is at work in you. The Spirit's beginning to work and say, hey, let me begin to offload some of that stuff and show you how it would be to live with me. The Spirit's at work in your hearts. Those are good battles to have. And you sometimes get weary in battles. I want to encourage you. Look around. Everybody in this room is in a battle. Not one of you looked around, by the way. Um, <laughs> later, look around. Everybody is battling. So guess what that means? You've got friends in the trenches. 
You know, you've got friends in the trenches, brothers and sisters in Christ in the trenches with you. And so with honesty and with integrity, you can look at somebody and go, I'm battling. Can you help me? Guys, that's hard for you. And women, I think it's hard for you too. I'm battling in these things. I'm battling. And, but it's good to be in that battle. And the battle is for what? The battle, and you start to see victory in the battle when you start to see some things formed in your life. And we're going to begin this in full next week. And what's formed in your life are the fruit of the Spirit. The word fruit there is a singular word. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, but it is the fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit dwelling in you begins to bear fruit. I was made fun of at at another church by this next statement, but I'm going to say it anyway, and you can make fun of it too. But you'll know, if I'm an orange tree, how will you know I'm an orange tree? You bear oranges, right? It's pretty simple stuff. An orange tree doesn't sit there and go, boop, apples. If an orange tree had apples, what kind of tree is it? It's an apple tree. It's not an orange tree. And I don't think every year, and in our state, you know, peach trees. I don't think every year the peach trees just sit there and go, oh, there they go. Here come the peaches. It just sort of naturally comes out, right? A peach tree naturally produces peaches. Guess what a Christian should naturally begin to produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Forgot one one time, and guess what? Everyone let me know that I forgot one. So, in your life, in the battle... Are you seeing some of the fruit born out in your life? And a lot of times we put it this way. Well, I've got some joy, but I don't have love. I just don't have the fruit of love. No, no, no. You have all of them. Maybe not all at the same level, but you have all of them. For the Christian, it is normative to have all of those. You realize that, right? And they come out and they begin to be born out in your life. And the way that they are born out in your life is, again, that work of the Spirit in cooperation with you coming together and going, I want to see these things born out more. So that's what Paul means here when he starts to say, I want you to walk by the Spirit. Uh, I want you to come and to see this fruit born out in your life. We're going to end with this today. How do you begin to bear fruit? How do you pitch that battle in such a way that you start to see fruit? George Mueller, who was just a wonderful brother who started so many orphanages in Europe, he wrote this. He said, I saw more clearly uh, than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy estate and how my inner man might be nourished. Now, what is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And what Mueller, who I think if any of us met Mueller, would say that guy bore the fruit of the Spirit in his life well If you've never heard or read of George Mueller, please take opportunity and read about George Mueller. And what he was saying was, this is how you begin to see the fruit of the Spirit born out in your life. Turn your heart towards Christ regularly. Look at him. Consider him. 
Preach the gospel to yourself regularly. He said, don't even begin to say, God, how can I serve you today? What can I do for you today? How can I glorify you today? But begin the day by saying, let my soul find its happiness and its true delight in him. And where can you find that? One, you can just begin by going here. Guess what this has to say about your relationship with God? An awful lot. And you know what it has to say about it? Your God is for you, not against you. Your God loves you. Your God is on his throne. He is your strength. He is your provision. He is your healer. He is your banner that you will run under. He is the warrior who will fight for you. He is your priest who represents you. He is your life. He is the one who has conquered all of your enemies and all of his. He is this for you. And if that's the case, guess what might happen to your soul as you replenish it regularly and daily with his word? What do you think might happen to your soul if you every moment, Every day, you begin by looking at these incredible promises of God to you. Do you think that might affect you at all? Man, absolutely. So how is it that you begin to walk by the Spirit and begin to see the fruit of the Spirit born out in your life? Become one who is in the Word regularly. Not just as a quiet time to check off, guys. But as a place that says, I don't know another beginning place. I'm going to walk, I'm going to get out of this bed and and I'm going to walk into a house that it's all of a sudden everything's going to drive me to want to be self. I'm going to step out of that house and I'm going to go into a marketplace or I'm going to go into a school or I'm going to go someplace and I'm going to be in a battle. And so I might want to start my day in such a way that I refresh my soul and it becomes happy in the Lord. For most of us, that's just not a common occurrence. I'm not trying to bind your conscience. I'm just giving you some wisdom. If you want your soul to be contented and delighted in the Lord, start at a place that tells you about that all the time. And then be with others in a way that helps you preach uh, the gospel to yourself. Uh, Remember that 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 sinful nature is there and it's battling. Continue to think about your thinking and your feelings. Don't just say, I shouldn't have done that. In our home, we have a rule. And it's the should rule. And what it is is simply this. You remember the banner that said, don't tread on me in the Revolutionary War? We have one that says, don't shoot on me. Well, you should have done that. Well, you should have done that. Well, you should have done that. Don't, no, no, whoa, don't, don't shoot on me. <laughs> because that's what I say to my soul all the time. Oh, Bill, you should have done this. Oh, McCutcheon, you should have done this. You had a chance and you should have, you should have, you should have. And instead, that's, that's laying law down. And instead, it's coming back and going, okay, Lord. What motivated me to go this way? What was underneath that? That takes a little bit more work, doesn't it, to deal at a motivational level? Why did that person's criticism affect me so much? What was I believing that was a wrong belief? What was I not believing about God that I should have been believing about God? What power did I give to this person that they didn't deserve? It comes back to here instead of, oh, I shouldn't have responded that way. Well, maybe you shouldn't have, but let's go back and find out why you did. Maybe it's because you desire that person's approval so much that when they give you disapproval, you're crushed. It's coming in, and it's, the economy's rough right now, right? And you read about it, and you see it, and you look at it, and you, and you go, and you read it, and all of a sudden you find out in your heart, oh, no, I messed up. And you get anxious, And your response to that anxiety is, oh, bad heart, don't be anxious. Quit it. Buck up next time. Instead, go back and say, bad heart, 
What were you believing? Your anxiety was driven by a fear that your God's not going to provide for you. So let's go back here and find out what this God says about his provision for you. There's not going to be a hair on your head that falls that he doesn't know about. He, he takes care of the lilies of the field. He takes care of the sparrows. He's going to take care of you. Let the word of the spirit begin to, to address it at a core level in, in that way. You see, walking with the Spirit isn't some big, high and fancy thing. It's really simple. It's coming back and it's saying, Oh soul, why so downcast? Ask good questions of your heart. Ask good questions uh, about why your actions. Ask why you lied at that moment. When we lie to one another, which we do, by the way, I asked a bunch of, ah, I'm getting long-winded, I'm sorry, but I'll tell you this. I asked a bunch of elders one time, not at our church, but I asked a bunch of elders one time, let's say I come to you and I tell you that I'm struggling with lying. How are you going to respond to me? And they looked at me and they said, we tell you that you shouldn't lie because it's a commandment of God not to lie and you should tell the truth. Do you think I knew that I shouldn't lie? Yeah. Thanks, guys. Now I feel worse. Well, all right. So I walk out and go, well, Bill, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't tell the truth. I already knew that. What did I need those elders to say to me? Was it wrong for me to lie? Yes. Should I tell the truth? Yes. How I engage that heart is different. I should say, help me understand. What motivated you at that point to lie? Lying is about hiding. What is it that, that, what are you believing that would cause you to lie at that point? Are you believing that your parents won't love you if they know that you failed? Are you believing that your spouse won't do this? Are you believing that this will happen? What are you believing? You get down at a motivational level. And at that level, you begin to apply the gospel and the truth of God's word. And what you begin to see is things begin to change in that way. It's a transformation from the inside out. That's what it's about. But it is a battle. And it's all done in community. We talked about that last week. That we're in community together in this battle. And I'm glad to be battling it with y'all or you guys to help some of you out. I'm glad to be battling it with y'all because we're called together to battle for the sake of Christ and for our own souls. Let's pray. Father, it is a battle. 